think Tevez going to Juventus, what, what a coup that was for me. I mean, On a head-to-head -head battle, Atletico Madrid can do uh, more damage to Barcelona than the other way around. Either he's really blind or he's fixing the match. I, I can't see it any other way. I'm, I'm trying to get Sir Bob on my side here by saying City will win the Premier League. It, it is an upset. You would expect Man United to go and win there. Over a billion dollars was paid in transfer fees uh, between the clubs in, in Europe. It's football. It's damn football. Like Ferguson said, football. Bloody marvelous. Yeah, well, the celebration was, I can't believe I just scored against Mexico. Uh, at one point, Parma, I think it's only like 224 players under contract. Hey, they're going to throw me out of here, fellas. You're going to get me arrested on your show. If you're a serious talent, you're going back and you're playing for Santos. You, you know, you're going back to, to play for, like, in Argentina for River Plate or Boca Juniors. Or you're going to Europe. He looked like the Ryan Giggs of old. He was more creative than any player on the pitch. Um, he made Matter look stupid. He made Rooney look silly. Now, the Premier League is what the most exciting league out there. I think it's probably the best marketed league without a question. When you look at the draw for the, the Champions League, you kind of say, well, all the pieces kind of fell into place for everybody except City. I am your host, Joe Ucello. Sir Bob, Mike Orr, my co-host, Rob Rojas. My trusted co-host, Ben the Machine. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 354 of Low Limit Football on this 10th of April, 2022. I'm your host, Joe Ucello, and tonight, El Trafico finishes in controversy as the game-tying goal from Latif Blessing and LAFC is waved off due to offsides. Man City pull out a thrilling 2-2 result against Liverpool, placing the title in their own hands moving forward. The draw is complete for the 2022 FIFA World Cup. We'll take a look at all the groups. And after leg one of the Champions League quarterfinals, Real Madrid and Liverpool look poised to go through, while Man City and Bayern still have work to do. And we're going to dive deeper into match officiating, VAR, and all other things refereeing with our very special guest, Christina Uncle, who will be joining us from CBS Sports. She'll be joining us in just a little bit. But first, let me get my co-host in here, Mr. Roberto Rojas. How was your two weeks, my man? It's been good, man. It's been good. I think there's been a lot of, I think, hectic football coming about towards the end of the season. I mean, we're at the tailgate of, obviously, uh, another European season uh, done, although there won't be anything big happening in the summer. I mean, yes, you still have playoffs, like you had mentioned, for that World Cup that's happening in November. So it's going to be a weird summer, I would say. Um, not since, I would say, when COVID started to hit the, the world and that led to the cancellation of numerous events. But no, I think uh, we're in for a a interesting end of the season in all of European leagues and the competitions as well. I agree. I, you know, I think, I think it's going to be a quiet summer to be honest with you. Obviously there are no tournaments going on because the world cup has moved to November. Um, I don't think we're going to see a lot of massive, massive major moves, um, but we will see some. Uh, there was reports that Kylian Mbappe is basically having a building full of money thrown at him by PSG for him to stay uh, and Real Madrid are starting to refocus their uh, their efforts instead of Kylian Mbappe, Erling Holland, which might throw a monkey wrench into Man City's plans. There's there's a lot of rumors that are starting to float around. We've always talked about players moving in a World Cup transfer window, and this one is a, is a strange window because we'll have a full window before the Cup. So um, 
you know, it's going to be an interesting off season, but it's going to be, uh, I, in my opinion, a, a quiet one. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I, I think everyone's really geared up for that World Cup. I mean, obviously, mm. it'll come right before the start of the winter transfer window. So I'm curious to see how that's going to come about. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that are really coming into play with that. So yeah, I'm sure many people want that big money move in the summer. I think. It makes sense to get them on the right path just before this World Cup in November. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see who comes about and if there's really anyone that can really stick themselves out among everyone else. Agreed. Let's uh, let's jump into it because I think we have a great show tonight, especially we're very lucky to have Christina Uncle to uh, join us on the show to talk all things refereeing. I really can't wait to speak with her. Um, but it is my honor for trivia, my friend. So I have a I have a Champions League trivia question, even though we're not going to get too deep into Champions League tonight. Um, I have a Champions League question for you. So if you're ready, let me lay it on you. Do for it. Go for all, it. All right. So uh, we're currently going into the second leg of the quarterfinals of the Champions League. And I went back and looked at the top goal scorers so far. Sebastian Haller currently sitting second, but obviously eliminated with Ajax from this uh, tournament. He'll only remain at second place or worse. Uh, so my simple question to you is, can you give me the top five active leading goal scorers in the Champions League at the moment for this Ooh. tournament? And I will give you a hint. There are actually six names on this list because there is a three-way tie for fourth place. I'm only going to ask you for five names, though. I, you know, I want you to give me five, and then I'll give you the sixth. But can you give me the top five active goal scorers currently in the Champions League? Okay. So, and we'll have uh, our answer at the end of the show. Let's get into opening thoughts. And on opening thoughts, last week we had our uh, our World Cup draw, finally. And I will lay out the groups very, very quickly to everyone here um, because we haven't had a chance to talk about them. In Group A, we have Qatar, the host country, will open their uh, will open the World Cup against Ecuador. Um, actually, the the way the schedule laid out, it's going to be Senegal, Netherlands, the other two teams in this uh, in this group. Uh, going to start out the uh, the opening round of the World Cup in Group A. In Group B, England, Iran, the United States, and we're waiting for the uh, UEFA Path A winners, which could be Scotland, it could be Ukraine, um, and, and the third team is escaping me at the moment. Um, Roberto, if it's off the top of your head, it's Scotland. Oh, Wales. Um, yep, Scotland, Scotland, Wales, or uh, Ukraine, and that one in Group B. In Group C, Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Arabia Mexico, and Poland. In Group D, France, the AFC Cumberbowl winners, which is going to be the Australia, Peru. Uh, uh, the Australia, uh, the, Australia has to have a playing game against Peru. Uh, well, they have to have a playing game, and then that winner faces Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, that is uh, that one. Denmark and Tunisia. Uh, also, uh, Christian Eriksen going to be getting back to the World Cup, which is a pretty exciting storyline on its own. Uh, in Group E, Spain, the CONCACAF winners, uh, the CONCACAF team, which will be Costa Rica versus the Oceania winner, which will be New Zealand. Germany and Japan will round out Group E. Group F, Belgium, Canada, Morocco and Croatia. Group G, Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland and Cameroon. Group H, Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay and South Korea. Your 32 teams for this year's World Cup in Qatar. Um, we always like to talk about a group of death right Roberto we, we, we always we always go there I don't know that there is a true clear quote-unquote group of death um, group E looks pretty tempting group D does look interesting you know there there are a couple of groups that look really really interesting in terms of that quote-unquote group of death 
but nothing like we've seen in the past. And, and my question to you is, is this kind of a testament to the fact that there's um, there's becoming a little more parity in world football with obviously players playing in different leagues. The top five leagues are all very strong in Europe. We have, you know, MLS emerging uh, with with, uh, you know, a team that's or at least a, a league that's going to put a, uh, a, a team in the CONCACAF finals, uh, CONCACAF Champions League finals. You know, are we seeing an emergence of stronger, more even teams because of the um, because of this event or, you know, and, and hence, do we see a fact where we're not seeing that quote unquote straight flat out group of death? Yeah, I was actually giving it some thought the other day as well. I think, yes, you do have some groups that are obviously a bit more straightforward than the rest, but you also have some groups that ultimately I think is open for everyone when you really dissect it. I think, yes, I think the um, the storylines that people want to put in is that, oh, we want to pick a group of death. But honestly, I don't see one, or at least I don't see a clear one. I mean, you had mentioned some of the groups there. I mean, even... Even Group H, that one with Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, and South Korea, I mean, these are four teams with good pedigree from their continent. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're powerhouses in their own continents, respectively, from four different ones. Um, so that's always a, a tricky one. I mean, yes, when you look at Group E with Spain and Germany, you would think, okay, who's going to be the winner of that? But, you know, Japan are always a tricky team to face, and depending on who comes from CONCACAF or Oceana, I mean, they can cause a surprise as well. Mm-hmm. Um, even the one, even the one that we're in, uh, Joe, the United States, the one with England, obviously being the the runners of the Euros and uh, semifinals back in 2018. Iran always a tricky team to face, no matter who they compete against. And whoever comes from UEFA, be it Scotland, Wales, or or Ukraine, those are three teams that are very much competitive. Mm-hmm. Hell, even Group A, even that, even the one with the host are in. Yeah, I mean. You have a, a, a Dutch side that is obviously very talented, and you see that with the players that they have. Senegal, obviously the reigning Africa Cup, um, Cup of, uh, Africa Cup of Nations champions. Ecuador, a side that I think has been always been tricky to face, at least what we saw in South American qualifying. And what to expect from the host? I mean, they're obviously mm-hmm. at, playing at home. I mean, certainly they have the, the home field advantage better than anyone out of the 31 out there. So... Yeah, I mean, I think there really isn't a a group out there that is sticking out that says, yes, this is a group of death. But uh, I think that is a testament that perhaps it shows that this World Cup, I think more than anything, Joe, I think, yeah, you have your favorites as well. You always have the favorites uh, coming out of this. But I don't, more than just not having a clear group of death, I don't see a clear winner of this. That's that's what makes this World Cup Mm. more so than the way that it's going to be played in November, I think that just adds to the, to how enticing it's going to be because you don't know what to expect from these players and from these teams come November 21st. So I, I, I want to just state one thing before I get back in, and, and recover your, your group points. I do think this world cup is going to be the best played world cup of any world cup. We're going to see. Okay. Uh, for a long time because of its timing. The top players all play in the top five leagues for the most part in Europe. So they're going to be mid-season form. This is, they're literally going to be in, in the middle of their seasons. They're not going to be exhausted from the 38 uh, match season and then your Champions Leagues and then qualifying. and all, they're, they're not, None of that's going to happen. They're going to be uh, in, in top form, in my opinion especially given the window that we're going to have that we just talked about two seconds ago, this summer window, which is going to be a rather quiet window for all intents and purposes. 
So I, I think this will be the best played World Cup. Now, let me go back into your group uh, information here and, and, and discuss it real quick. I do think Group A is going to be slept on as a group of death. You're, this is the only group that has two continental champions, defending continental champions in their group. Uh, Qatar is the Asian champion currently. Senegal is the African champion currently. The Italians didn't make it in, so that's your European champion. And, um, and Argentina have their own group, and the United States are in with England. Those are our other continental champions. So this is the only group that has two continental champions in it. Uh, we talk about Ecuador, and, and you and I actually by chat, I, you know, we talked about the 2018 World Cup when uh, we had Tim Vickery on. And I said to Tim, you know, Ecuador's in position to qualify. So who misses out, right? And ultimately, Ecuador was the one that missed out on that World Cup in 2018. But here they are. They, they are they're better. They're more experienced. They are talented. Uh, the Netherlands, we know what we're going to get from the Dutch. Between Memphis Depay, uh, Matthijs De Ligt, who scored a goal on the weekend, Virgil van Dijk, I mean, they're talented. Uh, Frankie de Jong, we know what the, the Netherlands brings. I, I think, you know, we, you and I talked about it, and I think ultimately Senegal and Netherlands will move through on this group, but this is going to be a very difficult group to manage, uh, in my opinion. I'm going to go back to Group B in a minute because I've got plenty of thoughts uh, on that one. Uh, you know, I, I want to mention real quick the... Uh, the Group E match uh, or the Group E group between Spain, Germany, Japan, and CONCACAF versus, uh, you know, CONCACAF versus Oceania, which is going to be the, the New Zealand team. Um, I, I think ultimately Costa Rica is going to move through. And I, I know I said CONCACAF, but I think Costa Rica is ultimately going to move through. And you're bringing really one of the top five goalkeepers in the world in Kaylor Navas into a group that on, you know, and, and we've seen it happen a million times. When you get a very hot goalkeeper, anything can happen. Look, you know, let's let's rewind back to 2014 and the U.S. taking Belgium to extra time in their in their knockout stage, and and really it was Tim Howard that carried the the United States through that match. This is the kind of thing that Kaylor Navas is capable of doing. You know, you have Spain, we have Germany. I mean, just all fantastic teams. Japan is always a powerhouse, always a well organized side. Um, you know, so so this is this is the kind of thing where this group becomes very difficult, especially if Costa Rica end up there. I know they didn't score a lot of goals in um, World Cup qualifying, but they're they're going to be difficult to match. Group F, I think, is very very interesting, and I want I'm going to pause here and I want your thoughts on Group F between Belgium, Canada, Morocco, and Croatia. Croatia, we've talked about an aging side, um, but they're still very very good, very very dangerous. We've talked about Belgium. Belgium is you know they're in their golden age, but their golden age is coming to an end. Morocco uh, is always a talented side as well. Very, very strong team. And then Canada, who's returning to this first this tournament for the first time since 1986, if I remember correctly. Um, Alfonso Davies, we've already discussed, the best uh, field player in CONCACAF, period. I, I don't care who you want to put up there. Christian Pulisic, you want to put up uh, Weston McKinney, you want to put up Raul Jimenez. I, I don't care. Give me a name. It doesn't matter. Alfonso Davies is the best player in CONCACAF right now. And he's in this group as well. So I want to stop here for a second because I want your thoughts on Group F, my friend. Yeah, I think um, I think looking at it in hindsight, it really is an interesting group because you're really looking at a, at a national team like Canada who none of these guys know what it's like to play in a World Cup. They've never experienced it. So they're going to go in, I would imagine, to show off what they can prove. And also because you know they have to host the World Cup in four years' time as well. So for them... 
this is really uncharted territory, but it's also for them to to really impress. And uh, for a lot of these Canadian players who you have some playing in Europe, but you also have a lot of them playing in MLS, they can go and, and, and really impress and maybe get on some European teams mm-hmm. I agree. Come, come next year. And yeah, I mean, this is the case about Belgium, a Belgian side who we know is talented, like you said, I agree. But, you know, for all the talent that they had, the so-called golden generation, I think it's going to be wasted because it, it, you don't see that in in silverware you didn't see it in the euros you didn't see it in the world cups so it's like you said i think yeah it is the last time that i think a lot of these players are basically playing in this world cup they can be able to demonstrate something and if they don't i think that that's one generation over so you gotta see what they do same for croatia i mean yeah they made the final four years ago let's see if they can repeat that success i don't know if it's possible but mm-hmm. that's the thing about this world cup it's tournament football anything can go so yeah, it's uh, that that group and Morocco, of course, you know the likes of Akimi and and many other players out there makes it a more interesting group and not as straightforward as one would think. Yeah, exactly. I agree completely. Um, you know, Group G: Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, Cameroon. This might be one of those groups of death that we might talk about. I mean, obviously Brazil, we expect that them to move on. We expect them to. They're one of the absolute favorites to win this World Cup. You, they're ultra talented. They always are. Um, but again, the Indomitable Lions are here. You know, when they show up at the World Cup, it's always going to be a problem. Switzerland, we've seen them perform very well. We saw them perform well at the Euros. Uh, Serbia, again, another talented side. This is another group that's difficult to pick. And then Group H, Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, and South Korea. This is another another tough, tough spot for all four of these teams. You You wouldn't be surprised if Portugal was eliminated. You wouldn't be surprised if they win the group. I mean, that is... That is just where they are, and and again, another very very talented side, barring Cristiano Ronaldo. You you think of Diogo Jota, you think of Bernardo Silva. I mean, there's there's plenty of names here that can carry Portugal through without Cristiano Ronaldo. So I, I think that that it's an interesting group as well. I'll tell you one group that we really haven't talked about a lot, and and I guess it's going to be a little bit of a snoozer, right? Um, by the way we're talking, but I don't think it is, is Group C. Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Poland. Um, this might be the one time, usually you can almost guarantee Mexico going through the knockout stages. This might be the one time when they get knocked out because uh, Saudi Arabia is not going to be an easy out. Uh, Poland is, you know, they've got Robert Lewandowski. Come, I mean, come on. If you've got Robert Lewandowski, you can win. Um, and then Lionel Messi, who's probably playing in his last World Cup, uh, a man that has gotten over the bugaboo of, of not winning the international title by winning the Copa America, one of the other continental winners here. I mean, this is this is going to be a tough spot for Saudi Arabia, but I think it's going to be a tough spot for Mexico. Does Mexico make it out of this group, my friend? Well, it, you say it's a bit straightforward, like you said, having Robert Lewandowski, but if you remember, Joe, in the last competitions that Poland were in, they got knocked out yeah. in the group stage. Happened in the Euros, happened in the World Cup, in in. And I would say groups that were a bit more straightforward. So, no, this isn't, uh, I'd say, a hard one for Mexico at all. I'd mm. say it's the complete opposite. I think, obviously, the big game against Poland for Mexico is the one where, you know, I think will determine it who it goes to the next round with Argentina. Yeah. Um, again, also an Argentina side that <clears throat> typically have always had tough draws in the World Cup. This time they've actually got lucky with it. So, mm-hmm. Barring a huge, and this is a team that's on what thirty-one games unbeaten or something like that. Something like that. Right? Under Scaloni, so yeah, they're they're on good form so right now. So yeah, um, I I don't think it's and it's Mexico. They always find a way, Joe. Come on, yeah. let's be real. 
even in the most difficult of circumstances, then they've had tough World Cup draws in the past as well. Mm -hmm. They always find the way to get out. They always do. So, no, I, I'm not at all um, worried about this Mexico side. So, I'm, I, I do actually see them getting out of the group, personally, uh, if, if we're looking at it like that. I, you know, I, I'm wondering about all the pressure on Tata Martino. You know, we're, we're going happens to all the Mexico coaches. Though. Sure, of course, of course. Yeah, it, it is. It's a big job. It's a high profile job in Concacaf for sure. And yeah, we'll have to see. Let's uh, let's let's go real quick to spend a couple minutes on Group B. Um, my first thoughts as I was listening, I don't know if you recall, I was uh, I was coming home from the hospital on um, on Friday when they were doing the draw, and England obviously drew uh, Group B Pot One. Uh, the United States drew drew Pot Two. Uh, I think it was Iran that drew pot three, uh, but I could be wrong about that one. But either way, the fact that Ghana didn't get in as the fourth team here means somebody didn't heat up the Ghana ball in the microwave uh, at the draw. At, you know, on this one is it, that was like my first thought went through my head. This this group would have been the absolute U.S. group if Ghana got into this fourth spot. But here we are, though, uh, three three teams, and and we're gonna have a, a fourth a very difficult side in a UEFA winner. Um, again, Scotland, Wales, or Ukraine. I mean, I think many are expecting Wales to come through, but again, all I, any of the three teams can make it. Um, what are your thoughts here? I mean, is this a group that the U.S. gets out of? This is this is the beginning of a golden generation for the United States. They're not going to have to qualify for the next World Cup. This is really the opportunity for them to showcase the fact that they can they can go up against tough competition and win. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look. This is a young side. It's the youngest side at the World Cup. I mean, barring some that maybe might make this team in 2000, that made it in 2014, these are all guys that are going to be playing in their first World Cup, like Canada. So, yeah, I, I think it's um, it's a group that I don't think is as straightforward. I, I, I think, barring England, you still have, in this case, a, a, a hypothetical five teams fighting for one spot to go out of the group. Right. And I think the United States... You know, with all its talent that it has now, and I'm not trying to be a home or anything like that, but I think ultimately they have what it takes to to really demonstrate what they can do. I mean, yeah, who doesn't want to play against England with most players playing in the best league in the world? And you have some that are playing over there as well, like Christian Pulisic, Pulisic for example, or Zach Seffman at Man City, or or Anthony Robinson, who might be going up with Fulham. So, yeah, I mean, you have that experience there. Iran... Barring political, uh, obviously, the last time these two faced was in 98. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, the United States will be going for revenge in that type of phase. Even for England. England have never beaten the United States in a World Cup ever. Lost in 50, and they tied uh, in 2010, back in the 1-1 draw. And then, you know, the first game, I think, is the most important one, personally. Uh, aside from the England one that's going to be happening on Black Friday, the one that they face against whoever is the UEFA Path A winner, I think if they get a win from that, I think that puts them in a really good spot to qualify out of the group because I think, with no disrespect to Iran, obviously, I think one of those three European sides is probably the biggest challenge, barring England, that that they can face at this World Cup. So I think if they're able to get that win um, from the get-go, then obviously play the game of their lives against England and then see what happens in the game against Iran, I think, yeah, I think the United States have a really good chance of getting out of this group. It's a young side. We have to see if they're really up for the experience. But like anyone that's confident in this U.S. side, and I know we've been kind of pessimistic under Greg Berhalter, 
Mm-hmm. Now it's the time to really showcase that to, to the entire world. I, I love the Black Friday reference. So for those of, that are listening that are outside of the United States are not familiar, um, the Thursday, because November 25th is a Friday, the Thursday, November 24th, is a holiday here in the United States. It's Thanksgiving. Uh, the Friday, the 25th, starts the shopping season for Christmas, which is known as Black Friday. It's called Black Friday because the uh, the retail stores that that sell whatever they sell usually go from uh, losing for the year to winning for the year on this one day because billions are spent in this country on Christmas gifts. So the, the, the Black Friday reference is the fact that, that most people will be going out shopping and doing their thing. And then at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, many of them will be home by then from shopping to come home and watch England versus the United States. I do think that this, this match... Uh, although it will not, I don't think it will surpass the Super Bowl in terms of viewership here in the United States. No, absolutely not. But yeah. I think it will be the most viewed soccer game in the United States. It will ever. be that, and and I think it will get up there. I think it will challenge the uh, the fo- the college football national championship. I actually do think we'll get there. It'll be at a prime time in a day where many people in the United States are not working, and they are coming home to you know after their their morning of ritual of shopping which begins here in the country as early as 4 a.m. in some places I, I do think that this will be one of the one of the biggest watched i mean it'll be the biggest soccer match watch in the in the united states but i also think it might you know it might surpass some of the other sporting events that we have in this country it'll definitely surpass the world series it'll surpass the nba finals it'll surpass the stanley cup i i do think that all those things will happen will it surpass champions league uh, I think so as well. Will it surpass in this country? In this, in this country, in this absolutely. country absolutely. I'm, I'm saying you, this is going to be the most viewed soccer game. Sure, sure, sure. In the United States ever. I think but, the record's what 30 million for a World Cup final between the U.S. and Japan and, and the, the, the the women's one. So, yeah, this one's going to definitely surpass it. But I think it's really got a shot to surpass the football, the college football national championship, which is one of the biggest viewerships every year in um, in, in this country. So. That's going to be the exciting part. The tournament, like we had mentioned earlier, does begin on November 21st. Uh, it does kick off because of time-wise. It does kick off with Sether, uh, Senegal and the Netherlands. Um, and we also will see uh, England and Iran and the United States and, uh, and and the winner of that UEFA path, uh, whether it be Scotland, Wales, or Ukraine. Those all kick off on the 21st. So we're going to have some great matchups to start and kick off that week uh, of World Cup uh, you know, group stage qualifying. So... Let's table our discussion there for now, my friend, um, and let's get our guests in here. Christina Uncle from CBS Sports uh, is joining us to discuss all things match officiating. Uh, we're we're going to talk about maybe a few different uh, you know matches in particular and a few different instances, but also get her views on her career and 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 some of the challenges that maybe she faced as a referee as a match official uh, in this world. So, without further ado, the Christina Uncle interview. And joining us now on Low Limit Football from CBS Sports, Christina Uncle. Christina, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. I want to open with a Serie A question. Um, as everyone, as the listeners know, I'm a big Juventus fan. And in the Juventus matchup on the weekend against Cagliari, the Luca Pellegrini goal was waved off or, or called off after a VAR review because of a handball on Adrian Rabio. In, in my opinion, watching the goal, um, Rabio his arm is his left arm is tucked in uh, and he's actually trying to turn away from the shot. It's something that jumped up on him so fast that he could not get out of the way. It does come off what appears to be from the replay, his arm, whether it be above the, above the shirt liner, you know, I know there's a whole discussion about that, but it looks like it comes off of him and then goes into the goal. It was called off before because of VAR. 
I want to ask your opinion on the play, um, if you thought that this was the correct use of VAR in terms of calling the goal, goal off, or should the goal have stood because of Rabiot's position of his arm and the fact that he um, he doesn't really make a play to try and affect the ball. He actually tries to move away from the ball. I wondered your thoughts on that uh, particular play. Yeah, no, this is uh, – well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Um, awesome to be able to chat some football with you guys. I've got you on this matter. Um, but I, I do like this one because this is kind of what breaks down, you know, that kind of extra level or understanding of how we apply uh, what we call an attacker handball. Uh, where we don't necessarily need this deliberate, right? So the VAR in this match is Paolo Valeri, uh, very, very good uh, VAR, um, works not only in Serie A very often, but as well um, UEFA in the World Cup stage. Um, and it was very good for him to pick this out, like you, you mentioned, right? We had here Rabio pulling his arms in, uh, hit them on the lower kind of a shoulder. However, in these types of decisions, these types of determinations, I don't remember if you guys are wondering if you guys remember two, three years ago, when uh, IFAB changed the laws of the game to that attacker handball, that if there was a handling offense, regardless of whether it was delivered or not, mm -hmm. by either the person, the attacker who hits into the back of the net, or the person before them into the back of the net, then we were calling that a handling offense, even though it wasn't deliberate. And that led to some really, really harsh applications of the handling events. Uh, a lot of them seem to happen in Premier League, which I think always they happen in Premier League, um, to which then IFAB actually backtracked and in, I believe it was 2020, if not 2021, they revised what we call the attacker handball. It, it only existed for a solid year. Um, and they revised the attacker handball that if a ball goes directly into the back of the net from a handling, from hitting what would be considering a handling offense of any attacker, regardless of whether it's deliberate, right? And here in this case, it would be determined not deliberate, it'd be an accidental handling. It is still called a handling offense. So uh, for many of those who might not understand that, just essentially anytime the ball hits uh, arm, which is the lower part of, you know, for lack of a better term, lower part of the, uh, the arm sleeve, right? So we say the underarm, bottom of the underarm pit and down to the fingertips. If that goes directly into the net, the football world has said they don't want handling offenses for that. And because of that, this is considered uh, an accidental, however, handling offense, therefore negating that goal in and of itself. And a proper recommendation by VAR Paola to send that down uh, to overturn the decision. So, you know, Christine, I really wanted to go dive into more of the whole situation of VAR. I mean, I think what we saw, and it's good that you actually mentioned the Premier League, because we did see some situations um, re relatively at re actually from the game from Arsenal against Brighton, where Martinelli was um, offside. And, you know, obviously, I think... Many people have even called out for the use of possibly time limits when it comes for these referees making decisions. Uh, we even saw the likes of Joel Embiid saying, you know, that he's not really a big fan of VAR. <laughs> he just tweeted it out a mm -hmm. couple hours ago. But I just want in your your honest opinion, like how have you viewed not necessarily VAR and, and the way that the, the interpretation of it by referees is used, not just in England, but maybe across different types of um, leagues in Europe and different continents, even here in, in the United States with MLS. I mean, how, how have you viewed it now in a in a world where it's very much here to stay yeah so i was initially trained in var at the inception uh here in major league soccer uh us being the first league in the world to actually apply var um and been given you know the sanctioning rights for it to do so even before all of the big the quote-unquote big boys right uh premier league and such uh, and bundesliga applied it and i am a football romantic at heart meaning you know 
there's errors that the referees happen, which obviously we're, we're shooting for 100% errors, which is by definition, you know, impossible. But that's what we shoot for, right? Um, and having been a, a player myself, um, you know, there, that's the beauty of sport. You have pros, you have cons, you have the ability to overcome an unfair situation, right? You come back from a 2-0 deficit, which is the worst, uh, the worst goal uh, leading thing to uh, come to play in you know, to overcome that decision. So by in the initial beginning of the year, I was a romantic at heart. I said, we're, we're making this too scientific. I'm not a fan of it, right? You know, the, we got 90 minutes. The players just need to go out there and just be able to do that. Now, that was my initial impression. And having been introduced to VAR and having done it for over, oh, I can't remember what, five, six, seven years now at this point, I am now a believer and supporter of VAR and the necessary use for it in this game. And the reason I'm going to go down this route is because it, this truly is, we, you know, we've been using this term modern football for the past three, five years, right? So my question is, is it modern or is it just, you know, current football? But we've been using this modern football analogy. It's a modern game. It's fast. The players are fast. Um, the dynamics are quicker. Things are more instant. Uh, the viewers and the audience and even the coaches are now allowed technology on the sideline can see a play in a situation instantly, right? And the only person who has that ability and that authority to change a clear and obvious error is the referee. And they were the only ones for the longest time who did not have that ability to even view a screen for a clear and obvious error for the hand of God's incidents, right? Um, that are the only ones who could change it. And for us to be able to do our job properly, we were living in a historical archaic age where we were not modern referees. Um, the most technology we have is a headset, right? But if you don't see as a referee and as an assistant referee or fourth, you don't see it, we can't be guessing on these issues. And the ability to give us this type of a technology tool, uh, right? And, you know, VAR, it's funny, we're going to now sit, get into semi-automated technology, right? And more than likely going to see it officially implemented in the Men's World Cup this December. Um, having this type of tool and technology for the referee, who's the only one who could change these decisions, is crucial and it's critically important. There's way too much stake on these games, uh, not just from the viewership and the enjoyment of the game, the love of the game, but you're talking about billions, not millions with an M, but billions with a B of dollars that are in these games at the highest level, right? Um, at the professional levels that are going in. And, you know, the hearts of countries and nations that are watching these games, hoping their, you know, their team carry on when we go into the World Cup, uh, not just qualification, but obviously the World Cup itself. So, you know, I am a fan of VAR. Um, there are things we need to tweak. Uh, the theory and theoretically speaking and pragmatically speaking, the way VAR is written and its intentions and its foundational core values and beliefs, I'm 100% on with and I believe. Now it's like anything, right? It's like even just our regular laws of the game. They can be written, they can be drafted, but now comes the second part of it, right? One, the second shoe uh, dropping is effectively the application of the VAR protocols is what we call it. And uh, I love that you bring that out because, you know, there are some differences. Um, you know, to say that there's not some differences in the application of VAR would be to basically be overlooking the obvious. And how VAR is applied uh, across the world can vary a little bit, but also the same way as how one officiates, even without VAR, can vary a little bit. Back in the day, we always have this joke, like, am I refereeing, you know, um, am I refereeing FIFA style? Am I refereeing domestic league style? Because there was a little bit of different expectations from the stakeholders and from the thought process and mental process of those who referee, you know, like if you referee Premier League, you're not refereeing Premier League the exact same way you're refereeing Combo Ball. I'm sorry, you just are. <laughs> it's a different game. It's a different vibe. It's a different culture. It's a different feel, right? And 
that's hard for people to grasp who've not been in that center of that pitch and have felt that energy and have understood how do you manage these players. But going back to that VAR component of it, the goal is for consistency, all right, consistency in application. And where people may see some of the variance and the differences, right, from Major League Soccer to Premier League, for example, to Bundesliga, um, is effectively one is you'll see the lines, right? I think we saw some in Man City, right? Where's, I, I forgot what it was. It was such a tight outside. We don't have that, uh, the, the Hawkeye lines like Premier League does in Major League Soccer. So super, super tight offside scenarios. Those are scenarios that we say aren't clear and obvious because we don't have a definitive line scientifically that's stating it. We're not putting a piece of paper on the computer screen and <laughs> making decisions that way, trust me. So that's why you don't see many of those tight offside lines in the VAR application when we're reviewing tight offsides leading up to a goal scoring opportunity in major league soccer, as you would see in premier league, right? And that's the difference in paying for a technology worth millions of dollars. So in a weird way that kind of really benefits major league soccer, but collectively and overall, when you're refereeing in your domestic professional league, and there are a little bit of differences, we always say Bundesliga has a higher threshold of what's clear and obvious for them. One of the highest, once you start getting into international football and international refereeing, when we talk about UEFA, CONCACAF, um, CAF, Commonball, um, you know, AFC, you know, there the mentality becomes a lot more consistent because now you have FIFA who is controlling that type of an application and making sure that the application and those who are basically going and instructing in those different federations are coming from the same mindset as Colina, right? Um, they're coming from the same mindset as to what it is that FIFA wants to see an application. So each federation is getting almost the exact same type of training, instruction, course, and then the, the top elite referees from each of those federations are then going on to the next round, right? Whether it's a FIFA under 17 or an under 20 event, right? Or club world cup. And there, that's where more of that consistency in the application and that training of saying, this is what we want at the international level. This is how we want the AR applied. This is where our level of clear and obvious error is uh, on not only just international, but in this tournament play. That's how we get closer to that consistency. And if you saw the Euros last year, the use of VAR in the Euros last year was almost pretty much flawless. Um, and that was good to see, but that was years of training leading into it. And these number of camps and elite uh, professional training camps that not many people know is what goes on. So, you know, even during professional domestically, we talk about how many times the players are gone that play for their international squad versus the professional squad. The referees are doing the same thing. They're going into camps. Yes, they uh, referee their domestic professionally, but they're also going into these camps that are UEFA specific, CONCACAF specific, and are getting trained and making sure that they have that mindset so that when they do step on these pitches that are very specific for the World Cup slash and or their federation, that they're all consistently the same mindset, even though they're from different countries. So I know that was a really long explanation, but hopefully that kind of <laughs> answers some of your questions on that one. Absolutely. No, no. And I think it's very interesting that you say that because obviously, um, as you know, and I think we live in a world that is obviously changing and not only from the refereeing standpoint, but obviously this leads into my next question. Uh, heading into, obviously, the Men's World Cup, like you said, in November, I mean, obviously, you have the best referees in the world participating in this, in a in the second World Cup where VAR is going to be used, and obviously, all that technology that has been really invested over the last few years, and it's not to say that, obviously, it's been completely flawless, I mean, you have that criticism, unfortunately, we do see that sometime in the culture of of how, uh, you know, fans, pundits, players like to really go at the ref, and, uh, you know, I think no one should ever have to be abused in the workplace for making their decisions. And because of that, it's kind of built this kind of toxic culture towards 
officiate uh, um, referees, not just even in football, but I think in, in many sports as well. So Off-court I just want your thoughts game. on uh, Yeah, there you go. Even Yeah. So just what's your thoughts on about that? And what would you say to those now wanting to watch this World Cup and, you know, are going to be really at the edge of their seat because, you know, they want to see their nation perform well, but understand that maybe they will vent that frustration towards the referees if a decision that they don't like goes against their own way. So what, what do you want to see from the referees and, and just the improvements from them heading into this World Cup happening in Qatar. Yeah, I mean, so this is just a, a, a nature or a component of sports, right? Myself included, right? I started officiating because I was yelling at the referee, right? That, that's kind of how I got my, and I was 10. So, you know, I, I was kind of cheeky when I was younger. Uh, I still argue I kind of am. But, you know, that's a kind of a, a little bit of our sports culture. So we're not going to completely, and I had a great conversation uh, with a new good friend of mine, uh, and he was saying, like, it's not going to go away. You're not going to be able to eliminate people's frustrations and emotions and yelling at the ref. And I say, hey, I get it, right? When we do training for referees and we talk about managing coaches and players, right, the difference between dissent versus frustration, right, um, the difference between uh, disrepute of the game uh, versus just that emotional reaction. We actually have these types of discussions in our training, especially – as quickly as we can on the game management perspective, because it's just a natural reaction, right? When you feel like you've been hardened the wrong way, you're going to naturally react in one way. Now, where we are having an issue, and like as you mentioned, not just in the game of uh, soccer or football, but it, along across all sports, is this second level, this toxicity level of saying, we're going to go out and above beyond a matter of frustration, et cetera, and instead we're going to go to the point of physically assaulting the referee, right? Um, uh, personally attacking them at their at their workplace, right? Uh, I know in my family, our information got doxied uh, at one time, right? Um, which really, you know, made us concerned because you just don't know what's out there. And it's like, it, it, you talk about the number, I mean, even Mike Dean, right? Uh, you know, having death threats on his family. Like, how do we get to that point and everyone's saying, hey, that's okay, right? Like, yeah, we re- yeah, the referee, they deserve it. You know, that person screwed me over on the soft side, right? You know, we can't, I don't know how we got to that second level. I don't know how we think it's just a funny thing or it doesn't matter or they're just, you know, no one's messing with it. Like, I don't know why we have to get to a point that somebody's going to actually physically really get hurt, which, you know, in the past couple of weeks, there's been clear examples of not just referees, but how we all as a sporting community, uh, as a football community, need to protect our game uh, for these individuals who think it's okay. And I think it's a minority of individuals, but unfortunately that small can affect, you know, the beauty for all. Um, a couple of bad apples, right, can, can rot in the barrel. And here we have a scenario where it's not just referees, but it's at the same time, if you're not protecting your million-dollar coaches and your million-dollar players like Salah, right, or Simon from physically getting abused and getting stuff thrown at them, you know, while they're exiting the pitch and Simon knowing it, sprinting off on that Man City, City game after Champions League, then you got, you know, referees being abused online. Like, if they're not protecting the million-dollar players, trust me, they're not going to be protecting my team, which is the referee team. And so how do we get to that component, and how do we get to that psychology of saying this is not okay and retraining the mindset of the sports culture? Now, that's a bigger piece of the puzzle that, you know, some people may not be interested in, which is another reason why we need to kind of change that. But going into these games here, um, especially coming up for the World Cup, you know, I, it's very important. I don't think people fully realize or appreciate the context of how long it takes for someone to even get on a short list, let alone even get invited to the World Cup, let alone even if you're invited to the World Cup, getting more than two centers um, or two games for you, right? And this experience or adventure to get to the World Cup, 
uh, we call it a career path, really, um, especially in the men's side. On the women's side, it's still a little bit of a passion project, and hopefully that's changing in the next um, two to four years. And there's some amazing champions at FIFA who are, are trying to change that for women, FIFA referees. But it takes people eight to 12 years to even get to that level after they become a FIFA referee. So before you become a FIFA referee, you're about five to 10 years in your domestic level trying to prove yourself. And then you layer on another eight to 12 years to even get invited to a FIFA event. And you have to be the best in your country. Um, very rarely do they take two from the same country. And then, you know, those assignments all play out based upon which countries get through, et cetera. So, I, I, you know, one of the things I just emphasize as we go into this World Cup and the selection of the best of the best, they truly are the best of the best. They're less than 1% of referees in the entire world who have, you know, not only performed um, and have, you know, succeeded above all of their other, you know, fellow referees in their country, but at the same time have been able to perform and be able to switch that mindset from professional refereeing domestic league to international referee domestic league and being able to appreciate kind of the moment and being trained at such a high level and take it as a livelihood. Um, you know, I would argue it's, it's even more difficult um, than, you know, qualifying your, for your national team just for the fact that there's only four. And truly, there's only three referees who get selected from your country, as you can sometimes switch with a fourth official with another country. Uh, and they usually keep these uh, referees as a group. So um, addressing the referee toxic, I understand there's frustration, et cetera. I don't yell at the referees anymore. I stopped doing that after my college years, um, <laughs> even though I watched my under six today. Um, but, you know, I really hope that people understand that, you know, none of us step out on that field saying we hope to screw up. And if anything, you know, our motto is, at least in the referee, you're only as good as your last game. So you could have had 10 years of solid performance, but if your last game is the FIFA World Cup final and, uh, you know, you let something wonky or crazy happen in that World Cup, you know, final, that's the only thing people are going to remember you for, um, and that may be your last game ever. Um, and so that's kind of a crazy thing, uh, but that's just the reality. We understand that that's, that's, that's what we took on becoming referees, so it's not lost on us either. Now, Christina, I want to jump in here because, you know, the discussion of VAR and how FIFA controls it at the at the competition level at a certain point versus the uh, the confederations or, or the different federations uh, internationally. Um, and then the discussion of, of of everything that's going on here so far, we'd, we'd keep you for hours. Um, but I had one, I'd, I'd have one question for you that I, I wanted to throw at you because this is one that kind of comes up in my brain every now and again watching an international match. Um, for example, USA versus Mexico, we're playing that in Azteca. You know, there's a lot mm -hmm. on the line. There's a, there's emotion. There's everything. I've always thought that having a CONCACAF ref, ref that, a guy from Honduras, Costa Rica, Jamaica, Trinidad, whatever, um, I always felt like even a referee from the region would have a, even the slightest piece of skin in that game. And for me, I've always thought that when you're talking about World Cup qualifiers, you know, major matches like that, I always thought it would be better to go and maybe pull a European ref, a ref from Spain or mm. or maybe a ref from Australia or something like that to, to ref outside. Because if, if FIFA is going to control the, um, you know, whether it be the match officiating or the VAR or anything like that, wouldn't it make sense to have a completely absolute neutral referee controlling some of those biggest matches in the world? I'm going to actually disagree respectfully with you on mm -hmm. that. And the reasoning why is because from a platonic sanitized approach, your answer, the answer would be yes. From, mm -hmm. you know, just looking at it on a piece of paper, the answer is yes. Then we're getting into, right, uh, you know, the meat on the bone kind of component of it. And to have a European referee step into a CONCACAF game 
the energy and the, um, I call it ethnic ball, the differences in the match, right? You guys, mm. I guess the best way to kind of correlate that to the players that people might be able to share a little bit better is, you know, watching a player like Christian Pulisic play for Chelsea, right? Um, and seeing that type of style of play and the types of passes he's expecting and how the fact that, I mean, not saying that people don't get stuck in, but the different types of challenges and knowing that kind of a play and that feel and that vibe in Chelsea and Premier League, is so significantly different than playing in CONCACAF. You hear the national team players talk about how different it is of a mindset and a style of play and those that they're playing against, how different it is from playing in other parts of the world and then coming back in CONCACAF to play. And that's why they don't maybe play as well as they do uh, back in CONCACAF because it is a different deal and a vibe. And that same you know analysis plays over into the referee world, right? You're used to refereeing European football. You're used to refereeing a certain style on the types of challenges that are expected. And then you go into a CONCACAF game, having that mindset and that training that is almost a second nature at some of these elite referees, right? They're, they're used to it. It just becomes part of the subconscious that they're able to focus at higher level detail that to step into another, like, for example, if we had a CONCACAF referee step into a European game, you know, that's a different vibe. That's a different feel. They would be lost there too, right? If we have, um, uh, AFC referee step into a CONCACAF or a ball game, God bless her soul, right? You know, AFC is a lot more of a respectful culture. <laughs> you know, that's the only, you know, the, the Japanese women, uh, I used to referee them all the time. And anytime I'd issue them a yellow card, they would thank me and bow. And I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is crazy, right? <laughs> Whereas if I'm refereeing the Brazilian women's national team, I give them a yellow card and I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know too much Portuguese, but I'm pretty sure everything they told me was completely offensive, right? But then I have to eat that, right? But then if you're an AFC referee, referring you know the brazilian women's national team you would have probably issued him a red card but me i would issue him a yellow card and just manage the heck out of those personalities and it's because of the different culture and the vibe and the ethnicity and the background so you know refereeing in these kinds of environments right so like coming up i refereed in the miami area at my higher level or you know really learning that i could kind of move up the ladder and knowing the difference of how to referee you know, the Jamaican versus Haitian men's division one team down there, knowing that a studs up into the knee, as long as they keep running, it's not a foul in that league. Right. Uh, even though technically my brain's whistling that it's a red card, but they don't want it in that league. And I can referee in that regard and they actually expect that, you know, those are things that can't be fully taught to somebody if they haven't been in that system for a while. So that's the only reason why I would respectfully disagree with that because you know, you can't retrain that. And even though, you know, we talk about FIFA, you know, mandating um, and us trying to apply as consistently as possible, this is where those differences just lie in the, from the cultural aspect that is in refereeing. We can't change no matter what. Like, I always laugh. I go, you know, watch the Scottish, uh, you know, uh, Scottish Premier Football League. And, you know, there I laugh. I'm like, I, you know, I don't know. They just beat the heck out of each other. <laughs> it's brilliant football to watch, but it would not be acceptable in other professional domestic leagues. So that's the only reason I would probably respectfully uh, disagree on that component. But, you know, like I said, on paper, it makes sense. Uh, in reality, you, we, would, we would have some really, really uh, interesting matches, to say the least. I'll be honest with you. Those those are little nuances that I never even considered in my thought processes either. So that's I don't know that we're you know agreeing to disagree. I, I'm you're actually kind of turning me uh, into your your side of the argument because I I I get it. You know, Roberto and I have a saying that we talk about every time. 
in, especially in terms of officiating, Conmebol gonna Conmebol, which is you know whether we're talking mm-hmm. Libertadores or we're talking Sudamericana or World Cup qualifiers in South America, South America's got this vibe that just there's it doesn't exist anywhere else. It's you a know? cult. It's a culture thing. It's, you can't really what I'm saying. It as much. And and I don't know that. No. It, yeah. Yeah. I don't know that a U.S. ref or a ref from Canada could walk into La Bombonera and and ref uh you know River Plate Boca Juniors and go yeah this is fine. I mean I mean that's literally the definition <laughs> of that dog sitting in the burning house, isn't it? I mean, you know, so I... Exactly. I, yeah. It's why that Brazilian referee was so jacked up. I think everyone kind of knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> but it's like everyone looks at him, like, some of the plays, and like, how does that happen? I'm like, I don't know, man, but the reason he's jacked up is he's got to watch his back. Don't, don't <laughs> that's it. No kidding. No kidding. I, you know, I want to close with one more question. I know I was going to ask you about your interaction with Juan Arango, and for those listeners, um, check out Christine Uncle's uh, Twitter page. She had a quick little conversation about changing a yellow card to a red card with Juan Arango. And I think uh, it's definitely a quick little two second read, but worth the read. I want to ask you a personal question. Um, one of the things that you've yeah. mentioned is uh, when you were talking about VAR and especially with FIFA, which kind of led me to my, my uh, confederation question was the consistency of application. That, that was the term that you, I wrote it down mm-hmm. as you said it. Um, so in your personal experience, because we, we did filter that in a little bit with, uh, with refereeing, you know, some of the women, um, I know for me, in my personal experience, the consistency of application is so, so important. I mean, and again, I'm not refing, I'm Correct. not licensed or anything like that, but there is, there is something to be said about being consistent about your calls and about being authoritative in your calls. And when you make a call, make it confident. Um, no matter mm-hmm. what, if you, if you saw them trip, you know, so if you saw one player trip another player, you're in there and you're going, you're blowing that whistle hard and you're saying, you know, you're pointing in the right direction. Whether the player got tripped or not, the fact that you are so confident in making that call and the way you make it call really makes it stand. You know what I mean? It's it's authoritative. Um, so mm-hmm. in your experience, and, and we're talking again now to the future referees of the world and anybody listening, what are some of the, the things that you've experienced personally that you would want to pass on to a referee coming up saying, you know, as they're, as they're growing into their profession, what are the kind of the, the pointers that you would want to give uh, somebody like that? Yeah, your, your, your third key is, you know, your third point is key uh, to me. So obviously consistency, but, you know, there are, you know, I can, I can ask and usually I'll walk in and I'm, if I'm addressing a group or saying, you know, if they have the first, question and frustration by refereeing i'm like yes i know you want consistency let's move on right and i was like here's how we get to consistency right so we've already identified what it is that everyone wants so you know what are the tools for it and that third component that you said the confidence issue you know i was thankfully um when i was 18 19 years old i was discovered uh i i was playing collegiate ball and go figure yelling at the referee and <laughs> you know in using the laws of the game so he kind of figured out and he's funny enough he was the boss of florida he was a fifa ar back in the day. So he found out I was a referee and then, you know, started assigning me to games. But then I met um, a referee by the name of Nancy Lay. And she was one of the first, uh, she was one of the first, her and Sandy Hunt were the first women to referee major league soccer at the same time, the same day, funny enough. But Nancy Lay was my direct mentor. And this lady, like we always laugh to make full grown men grow, full grown men cry. And her number one advice to me, and it's always stuck through, and it's something that I advise and I instruct others uh, without even getting to know them or having seen their game, but it's the number one key is that confidence issue. So, you know, if you're making a penalty call, you're not guessing, right? right. And you are laying into that whistle. And, you know, I always kind of have this mindset of saying the job of the players and the coaches and the fans at that moment, because I'm looking at it from as neutral of a perspective as possible, 
whereas everybody else is looking at it from an angle that benefits them, is to essentially their job is to make me, as a referee, doubt myself and my call and my decision and make me overturn my call, which doesn't happen very often. So that's pretty funny, the the long comment now, because that was about overturning the decision. But, you know, their job is to make us doubt ourselves. However, if you're going in and you're making a decision, even as something as simple as a throw-in at the middle of the field, and your body language and your posture, and it's this, it's this term called command presence, which is something that is typically used more in, you know, the police world, right? And in the military world, it's this command presence. And you are just laying it down. You're going to now start making the players doubt themselves, especially those nearby. Because then they're like, oh, wait, shoot, maybe I saw something a little different, right? Because that referee is so confident in that decision, uh, so confident in this yellow card, that you may get a little bit less dissent. Not that you're not going to get any dissent. But you're going to get a little bit of less dissent. They're going to start questioning themselves. Well, maybe I didn't see it, right? That referee's right on that. And, you know, especially when you're coming up as an official and there's not as many, which back in the day, there wasn't as many cameras until you started doing professional games. Now I can literally sit in my, you know, my office here and turn on six different streams and watch everyone playing youth, refereeing youth soccer right now. Like, it's that crazy. But, you know, when there's no cameras, I always laugh and I tell up-and-coming refs, I go, how many cameras do you think are on this game? Is there one right there on the top of the 18, right? Is there one behind the goal? Is there one at the 18 midline? Is there a, a handheld camera walking around? I'm like, no, the answer is no. Mm. <laughs> the answer is no. So don't make things up. Be incredibly confident in your decisions. Um, and kind of that second component, and I know that even it's lost on referees, and it was something that I, you know, I just did it by nature because I was playing soccer and collegiate soccer when I was coming up, but is the fact that referees are athletes out there that on people don't realize that dependent upon the style of play, right? So for example, if I was refereeing uh, like the U S women's national team, the way they played was a little bit more side to side lateral before they would do a quick counter. You know, I would average between six to eight miles, right. If, as opposed to maybe doing a uh, men's professional major league soccer game where you will average about seven to 10 miles uh, as a center referee in the middle of the game, that's not even including the number of sprints. And, you know, sidestepping and movement, et cetera, that now as referees and like I go, go back to that modern day game, the modern day referee must be an athlete, uh, first and foremost, and must ensure that their lifestyle when they're not performing on the game is more of a athlete mindset um, and athlete training from food to nutrition. So those are the two really big components of, I say, of anybody who's aspiring to, even if you're just refereeing your grassroots level or the youth level in the backyard, you don't want to be that weekend warrior pulling an ankle or pulling a hamstring or a quad, but it's a really focus on that athletic side because that's going to get us to those positions and those angles to be able to see those fouls in the first place to make the right decision and be consistent. I can't even emphasize more what you just said because I see it week in and week out, whether I'm playing or I'm coaching, um, the ability for a referee to move and keep up with plays is paramount to making the right call and, and being there to see, to being in position to seeing the right call. It, I, I can't stress enough what you just said. So um, again, Christina, thank you for coming on the show and giving us so much time tonight. It was a fascinating discussion, but like we said, we could probably go for three or four more hours. Um, all, <laughs> all, the, all the best. And we hope to have you back again very, very soon. Thanks all. Thanks for having me. Enjoy the conversation. And special thanks again to Christina Uncle for joining us on the show. Roberto, we've got some great matches of the week coming up this week as we have the second legs of Europa League and Champions League coming up this week. So right away, Tuesday, Bayern Munich, Villarreal at 3 p.m. Currently, Villarreal sit with a 1-0 lead. And Real Madrid, Chelsea at 3 p.m. as well. Real Madrid with a 3-1 lead in that one. Uh, Going into Wednesday, Atletico Madrid, Manchester City uh, at 3 p.m. City with a 1-0 lead in that one. 
And also at the same time, 3 p.m., Liverpool and Benfica. Liverpool currently sitting on a 3-1 lead going back to Anfield. Thursday, we have multiple Europa games uh, coming up. They are all tied at 1-1 except for the Rangers-Braga match, which sees uh, Rangers currently ahead in their home-on-home uh, -home leg. Then we get to the back to the leagues. On Saturday, we have Borussia Dortmund and Wolfsburg at 9.30 a.m. We're actually going to give you a double dose of Bundesliga this week. Also on Saturday, we have AC Milan and Genoa at 3 p.m. on Sunday. Newcastle Leicester City will kick us off at 9.45 a.m. Bayer Leverkusen and Leipzig back in the Bundesliga at 1.30. Then we have the, the French uh, Le Classique, PSG and Marseille at 2.45 p.m., followed by Sevilla Real Madrid at 3 p.m. I'm sorry I didn't give you a MLS match of the week, but keep in mind, next week we've got some big midweek matches, including Napoli-Roma, Liverpool United, and Chelsea-Arsenal to keep an eye out for. So, uh, Mr. Rojas, I gave you a trivia question earlier. Um, I will repeat it for you at the moment. So, uh, going into the second leg of the quarterfinals for the Champions League, I asked you to give me the top five active leading goal scorers in the competition this season. There are six names on the list as three uh, players are tied uh, with six goals apiece in fourth place. Can you give me five names? So obviously I think the one that stands out is the one that scored uh, two consecutive hat-tricks in the Champions League, and that's Mr. Kareem Benzema. Kareem Benzema second on the list at the moment, 11 goals. Next one is going to be another player that is running away with the golden boot at the moment, Robert Lewandowski. He's number one with 12 goals. Okay. Uh, this is where I'm going to have to think of here. Okay, I'm going to give you Raheem Sterling. Raheem Sterling is not on this list. There is okay. a Manchester City player on this list. That's though. what I, I know. There's one, but which one is it? It's the big question. Uh, well, let me let me switch gears to Liverpool. Can we put in Mo Salah on we, the list? We can at third place with eight goals. So. All you have left are three players tied at six goals each. One of them is a Manchester City player. Okay. And what about the other two? Um, I'm not going to tell you their teams because that might give away one of the players. Uh, okay. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, oh, all right. So in that case, let me put in Mr. Luis Suarez. Luis Suarez not on this list. It's not okay. a Liverpool player. And the other two players are actually not Boy, even EPL he, players. Well, Atleti was the, the team I was going for. Oh, I'm but, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well then, uh, there is a Spanish player, a, a team that plays in Spain on this list. It is not okay. Luis Suarez. I don't know why I was thinking Liverpool. <laughs> uh, can I put in Vinicius Jr. on the list? You cannot because he's not on this list. Okay. I'll give you well, one I'm more, and I'll yep, give you one more. Yep, one more shot. Let's guess the City player. Can we try Kevin De Bruyne? Kevin De Bruyne is not on this list. The City player you are trying to think of is Riyad Mahrez with six goals ah, in the Champions League. Yeah. And by the way, I got my uh, facts here from Flash Score, uh, so you guys oh. can go ahead and, and fact check me. The other two players, Bayern Munich player, Leroy Sané, six Sané, goals. Yeah. And the last one, Villarreal, Ar Arnott Danjuma. Six, Juma, yeah. six goals for them as well, for him as well. So top five players active currently. There are six names. Robert Lewandowski with 12, Kareem Benzema with 11, Mo Salah with eight, Leroy Sané with six, Riyad Mahrez with six, and Arnott Danjuma from Villarreal with six as well. Our trivia question of the day. So Excellent question. Without any further ado, my friend, I have nothing left on the docket, so let's hit the closing music. Let's do it. Here we go. So, for 
episode 354 of Low Limit Football. Special thanks again to Christina Uncle for joining us on the show. Next week, we're going to give you the semifinal matchups for the Champions League, semifinal for Europa League, and the league action as well as we head into the weekend. So for episode 354 of Low Limit Football, I am Joe Ucello. I'm Roberto Rojas. Thanks for listening, everyone, and good night.